It's the Victorian Variety Show. The fascination which the general public finds in clever tricks and illusions is little to be wondered at. But it is a mistake to suppose that all the outfit which the modern magician needs is a few paper roses, a pack of cards, some coins, and a wand. The fact of the matter is that usually the most entertaining tricks are those which are produced at considerable expense in the way of apparatus and stage fittings. It is for this very reason that the secret of the illusion is always so closely guarded by the prestidigitateur. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, in which I try to leave no stone unturned in my examination of the fascinating, complex, and often misunderstood Victorian era. I like to look at topics that many of us may be familiar with in 2022, but never knew were also a thing in the mid-19th century. Or examine a better-known aspect of life during the Victorian era from what I hope is a different perspective from what you've previously heard or seen. And I've been doing this for one whole year now. I put out my first full episode on Penny Dreadfuls on August 7th, 2021, and I am pleased to say that the reception and feedback I've gotten from listeners this first year has been amazing and has made me really excited about taking this show into the future and not only tackling new topics, but maybe also going back and re-examining some that I've touched upon in previous episodes. Because one thing I see constantly the longer I do this show is that so many Victorian practices and trends and beliefs that I originally didn't think were related are somehow connected to each other. And I think this type of perspective can help us better understand not just the Victorian era, but other historical periods and even our present day, as impossible as that may seem at times. But before I go any further, my name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read is from Book One, Chapter One, because I know you pay attention to that stuff, of Magic, Stage Illusions and Scientific Diversions, Including Trick Photography, edited by Albert A. Hopkins, which I believe was originally published in 1897, but it looks like you can find reprints of it on Amazon, and I will include a link to an online version in the show notes. I stumbled upon this classic a few months ago and have posted a few of the illustrations and tricks on this podcast Twitter page because the book is full of them. There are some detailed depictions of well-known tricks that you may have seen performed if you've ever attended a magic show, but there's also some pretty macabre stuff that I very much wanted to take a closer look at. So, I decided what better way to kick off year two of the podcast than with the discussion of Victorian-era stage magic and illusions. It's a fun topic, but also a broad one. So, I think I'm going to break it up into at least two parts. This week, 
I'm going to give you a brief overview of how and why stage magic became a popular form of entertainment in the 19th century and talk about some well-known venues for magic shows and performers during this period. And in my next episode in two weeks, I'm planning to focus more on the illusion side. Before I go any further, however, I want to talk a little about the word magic. According to the American Museum of Magic, quote, magic, sometimes referred to as illusion, is a performing art in which audiences are entertained by stage tricks or illusions of seemingly impossible feats using natural means, end quote. I have to admit, I've been struggling a bit with this definition. On the one hand, I think it pretty accurately describes stage magic, but by using magic as a general term to refer to one type of performance, I also think it makes a somewhat misleading distinction between stage magic and other types of occult phenomena. Because in reality, the word magic is often used to describe a lot of mysterious practices. Although, as I'll explain in a bit, I also think I can understand why this distinction is made. As I started thinking about how I would put this episode together, I remembered that in a 2017 novel that I read last year, called The Rise and Fall of Dodo by Neil Stevenson and Nicole Galland, one of the characters, Tristan Lyons, uses the word magic to refer to summoning, traditionally associated with witches, and believes this type of magic ended on July 28, 1851, when a total eclipse of the sun was photographed by Johann Julius Borkowski at the Royal Observatory in Königsberg, Prussia, which is now Kaliningrad, Russia. Speaking to Melisande Stokes, who narrates much of the novel, Tristan explains that, quote, photography disables the summoning, as you called it. Photography breaks magic by embalming a specific moment, one version of reality, into a recorded image. Once that moment is so recorded, then all other possible versions of that moment are excluded from the world that contains that photograph, end quote. Although I think Tristan's theory makes a case for just how groundbreaking an invention photography was during the Victorian era, I don't know specifically how the authors thought to connect photography with the death of the summoning type of magic, but I think it turns out to be a good jumping off point for a 700 plus page novel that features time traveling witches from different eras. And I also think it suggests that for millennia, quote unquote, magic mostly referred to witchcraft and folk healing and was taken extremely seriously. For example, in England, legislation that made magic a crime punishable by death existed during much of the 16th century. And I think most of us are at least a little familiar with the Salem witch trials in America. Although examples of magic as performance art, mostly in the form of tricks involving ledger domain or sleight of hand, such as card tricks, the cups and balls technique, and making a coin or pencil disappear, to name just a few, can be found as far back as 50 CE. 
It wasn't popular as entertainment until the 17th century, in part because until the publication of the discovery of witchcraft by Reginald Scott in 1584, people could be accused of performing witchcraft for doing mostly harmless tricks. Practitioners of ledger domain weren't exactly in the clear after Scott's book appeared. The timeline of magic I found on Wikipedia notes that many copies of Scott's book were burned in the early 1600s. But I think this explains why stage magic became popular in the latter half of the 17th century, when the fear of witchcraft began to wane, thanks in large part to the Enlightenment during which magic and witchcraft were associated with superstition and religious fanaticism. So although I'm mainly going to talk about stage magic from here on, I wanted to stress that it's just one of a variety of phenomena that fall under the umbrella of magic. Prior to the late 1600s, you were probably most likely to see magic tricks performed in the street or at a back table in a tavern or someplace like that. But as the idea of magic as a legitimate form of entertainment began to gain traction, magic shows became incorporated into events like fairs and carnivals. And magicians frequently developed larger-than-life personas to complement their techniques. This makes sense, because magicians often competed for fame and fortune, and some of those on the fair circuit made out pretty well, such as English showman Isaac Fox, who, according to the American Museum of Magic, had earned approximately 10,000 pounds, which is equivalent to about 1 million US dollars today, by the time of his death in 1732. Then, starting in the second half of the 18th century, the Industrial Revolution made a number of inventions that had previously been considered unimaginable a reality. As the pace of technological development increased during the 19th century, many magicians saw the possibility of incorporating some of these new technologies into their acts. As a result, it's not surprising that as an article on the University of Sheffield website called Magic and Illusion Explains, by the Victorian era, the ideal conditions were in place for, quote, the development of magic through the marriage of mechanical development, ingenuity, and an insatiable curiosity for the unknown and the strange, end quote. One result of this marriage was a change in the type of venue that housed these performances as they became more complex. Newer technologies like the magic lantern, versions of which existed in the 1600s with illumination supplied by candles and oil lamps, but which was taken to a whole new level in the 19th century, were often used in conjunction with mirrors, large glass panes and screens, and more props in general, ranging from the large boxes you've probably seen that are used for sawing people in half, to chairs, tables, and drapes, to name just a few, were being used. I'll describe some of these unique illusions in much more detail in my next episode. But for now, it's safe to say that magicians needed more room in which to operate, not only for the purposes of staging more elaborate acts, but also for concealing their devices and props, 
as well as the assistance that many of them needed. In addition, illusions could be staged on a much grander scale than many techniques that relied primarily on sleight of hand. So there was the potential for increased audience attendance, and with it, the need to project what was happening on stage to the people all the way in the back. It was extremely difficult, if not downright impossible, to pull many of these acts off in the type of tent commonly found at a fair or carnival. So an excellent opportunity arose for venues that were able to house such performances, namely music halls and theaters. According to the University of Sheffield, magic shows were often presented either as part of a variety bill or as standalone presentations, and some venues became closely associated with the magic acts that they hosted. One of these was the Royal Polytechnic Institution in London, which is now the University of Westminster. Founded in 1838 to educate the public in matters of science, the Royal Polytechnic regularly hosted lectures, exhibitions, and demonstrations of revolutionary new technologies, including photography, and became known especially for its unique magic lantern shows after 1848 under the direction of John Henry Pepper, a chemical engineer who would go on to become a great showman and pioneer the technique known as Pepper's Ghost, which is basically an illusion that's created when an image is reflected off a pane of glass or plexiglass. And incidentally, I heard Pepper's Ghost referred to in an old episode of the show Ghost Hunters while I was putting this episode together. I think it's important to keep Pepper's scientific background in mind when we look at other Victorian-era showmen, as many of them either had similar backgrounds or considered themselves allies of those who did, due to their embrace of new technologies and techniques. However, a number of prominent 19th and early 20th century magicians were actually skeptics when it came to other popular Victorian-era trends. When I was doing research for my spiritualism episodes last year, I found out that the Hungarian-American magician and escape artist Harry Houdini was a huge skeptic for many years and actively debunked a number of mediums and psychics he believed were frauds. As we'll soon see, Houdini wasn't alone. And going back to what I was saying earlier about using the word magic to refer to stage magic, it almost seems to me like a number of magicians were eager to portray themselves as men of science and distance themselves from those who practice mediumship and the like. Although, when you think about it, it was easy for fraudulent mediums to practice their craft back then. And some mediums later admitted that they faked it, including Maggie Fox of the famous Fox sisters at one point. So, some of the folks Houdini and others exposed, you might say probably had it coming. Another popular place to take in magic shows in London was the Egyptian Hall in Piccadilly, which Wikipedia tells us was completed in 1812 and was the first English building that was influenced by the Egyptian architectural style. Originally a museum, 
the Egyptian Hall was converted into an exhibition hall and eventually became known for hosting what the University of Sheffield refers to as, quote, all types of optical illusions and peculiar entertainments, end quote. And most notably for the purposes of this episode, the magic shows of John Neville Maskelyne and George Alfred Cook. Maskelyne in particular also had a scientific background. He was a former watchmaker and inventor known for creating some automata such as Psycho who played whist with human participants. Teaming up with Cook, he gained recognition by exposing the Davenport Brothers, an American spiritualist duo that visited London in 1865. From there, Maskelyne and Cook went on to become one of the most popular magic acts in the UK, and their residency, if you will, at the Egyptian Hall lasted over 30 years, until its closure in 1905. So, in talking a bit about the Royal Polytechnic Institution and the Egyptian Hall, as well as some of the showmen who regularly perform there, hopefully you're starting to see how the perception of stage magic was evolving during the Victorian era. In an article called Death is Not the End, a Victorian book of magic and illusion, Megan McRae describes the theater as a quote-unquote serious realm and compares stage illusions to special effects. So I'm picturing a Maskeline and Cook show at Egyptian Hall as something similar to a night at the movies today. It's a different setting than the type of tent you might have seen magic tricks performed in at a fair. There's more room in a theater, the acoustics are better, and I think the potential for awe is much greater when the lights go down. So I think you can see how magic shows became a more quote-unquote respectable form of entertainment for wealthier people. Although the downside of that is that such respectability probably drove up the price of tickets and thus made these shows inaccessible to many. Still, drama abounded, as can be seen not only in the debunkings of the spiritualists by many of these showmen, but also in the rivalries that reportedly existed among them. In an article called The Prestige, the real-life warring Victorian magicians who inspired the film, Beatrice Ashton Lelliot calls rivalry a quote-unquote central theme in the 2006 Christopher Nolan film The Prestige, starring Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale and describes some real-life examples of magicians who challenged each other, often rather publicly. Our friend Maskeline, whom Ashton Lelliot notes was known to sue those whom he felt stole his tricks, had a bitter rivalry with Harry Kellar, an American who allegedly copied one of Maskeline's levitation tricks, either by storming the stage during a performance to get a good look at how the act was pulled off, or by hiring a spy to get the dirt. According to Ashton Lelliot, no one really knows how Keller did it, but either possibility makes for a good story, I think. And then there was, and I apologize if I butcher this name, Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, 
a Frenchman who is perhaps best known for the marvelous orange tree, a mechanical tree that sprouted orange blossoms when a loud noise such as gunfire was produced, as well as second sight, in which a type of clairvoyance was used, and ethereal suspension, in which someone, frequently Houdin's son, appeared to be suspended in midair. Ashton Lilliot explains that Houdin claimed to have been mentored in the art of conjuring by a traveling performer who went by the name of Torini. Although in the 1960s, a biographer of Houdin discovered that Torini had been fabricated by Houdin, quote, to add some dramatic flair to his own origin story and create a dramatic legacy for his own magic tricks, end quote. His backstory is not the only thing Houdin is believed to have lied about. Ever the debunker, Harry Houdini, who as a young man was so inspired by Houdin that he based his stage name on Houdin's, later claimed that Houdin stole most of the tricks in his repertoire from other magicians. I don't know enough about Houdin to say whether or not I agree with Houdini, but I mention it to show that Houdin was a controversial character who had a number of rivals, such as Scottish showman John Henry Anderson. According to Ashton Lelliot, Anderson, who's credited with popularizing a number of tricks, would leave a city if he heard Houdin was scheduled to perform there. So, even though this might be starting to sound like an episode of The Real Illusionists of Piccadilly, if reality TV had been around back then, I think it's important to know what was going on off stage. Unless, of course, you buy the story about Keller crashing one of Maskelyne's shows, because it further piqued the public's interest about the men behind the awe-inspiring illusions and probably made for some great publicity. I'm going to end this discussion of Victorian era stage magic here, but I want to know what you think. You can send me an email at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter, if you don't already, at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can buy me a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 or leave me a tip on my Linktree page or on the Good Pods app. I would also really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Good Pods, Audible, or wherever you listen, because it helps the show reach more listeners. And finally, I would like to thank Lamming Amanda for replying to my Q&A question for the episode I did on morning dolls and death kits a few weeks ago. Amanda, I really appreciate your taking the time to respond and for your kind words about the show. And for everyone listening, I've been posting a question to go along with some episodes, not every episode, but some of them, as a little surprise. I think it only shows up on Spotify right now, but if you're listening to me over there, I would love it if you left a response to one of my questions. 
I like seeing listeners engaging with the show and telling me what you think. I hope you enjoyed this brief discussion of some of the places and personalities that helped to make the Victorian era something of a golden age for stage magic. And I also hope you'll join me in two weeks when I describe some of the illusions that you might have seen at, say, a masculine and cook show at the Egyptian Hall. Personally, I can't wait to delve deeper into some of these. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with another quote from Hopkins' book on magic. And specifically, this quote is taken from Houdin's memoirs. Specifically, Houdin seems to be talking about his early days, in which he was learning techniques like juggling. But I like this quote because I think it suggests a straightforward approach to stage magic that I think a lot of us can miss out on when we think of magnificent, complicated tricks. I don't think this quote takes any of the mystique away from stage magic, but it gives us a good sense of what inspired Houdin and other showmen of the period to perfect their craft and become legends who continue to dazzle us over a hundred years later. I had often been struck by the ease with which pianists can read and perform at sight the most difficult pieces. I saw that, by practice, it would be possible to create a certainty of perception and facility of touch, rendering it easy for the artist to attend to several things simultaneously, while his hands were busy employed with some complicated task. This faculty I wish to acquire and apply to sleight of hand. Mm -hmm.